speaking the language at a basic level. Okay, this is a terminology we use within the organization to evaluate how far a missionary has progressed. If I go into Seth and Caitlin in the Konamala and I discover they're speaking at a basic level, that means they can go around and point at item objects and give me the word for it. Tree, rock, house. That's not very high, right? You can't communicate the gospel that way. If they have made it to a progressing level, that means they're communicating in full sentences. Instead of saying tree, they're able to say, that's a tree. That's a green tree. That's a tall tree. That tree is behind my house. That tree is in front of my house. Sentence level. That's pretty good, but you still can't share the gospel that way, right? Each of those categories is broken up into a low, mid, and high. So there's really three, six, nine, twelve levels. Before the guys left Konamala, they had reached a progressing high level, which you can see is about halfway through. That means they're speaking in sentences in Konamala, full sentences, but they need to get to speaking in paragraphs. And then after they learn how to speak in paragraphs, then they have to learn how to put multiple paragraphs together. How do you, how do you put an argument together? How do you convince somebody of something in this language? How do you string a, a whole story together? If you can only speak in single paragraphs, you're going to sound pretty choppy and pretty hard to listen to. So the farther they go in that, the harder it gets. But as a father, I can tell you, and honestly, as a missionary who my wife and I had to do this ourselves, the fact that they've made it to progressing high in one year is very encouraging. Uh, I, I think I, Seth will tell you a little bit about that uh, in his little video clip with you. They've also been building strong relationships within the community. They got out just before COVID to return for the birth of their daughter, Olivia. Then they returned to New Guinea in January of this year on a UN humanitarian flight. It was the only way they could get back into the country. The Lord provided that as a way for them to get back in. Since then, they had to quarantine. Uh, that was in January of this year. Uh, they went up to, they went back into the village. They had to come back out to their supply base. I'll show you where this, that is on the map. And now they're back into Konamala. In fact, I believe my next picture kind of lays this out. The top arrow points at a town called Kaviang. That's where Seth and Caitlin have to get their supplies. It's an eight-hour drive in that little red road all the way down to the bottom area which is where the Konamala people live so when they returned they went into the Konamala people they had to go back up there for supplies and actually they had to go up there for another reason and this is a little concerning for us as parents uh, that what do we call it our guest house location place where all their supplies are bought uh, some people broke into that and assaulted the the missionary couple that lives there and it was a pretty stressful ordeal so Seth and his co-worker were asked to could you guys go back up there spend a couple of weeks and help them get their security protocols better get some better fencing built and get you know just make sure things are more secure so they went up there they did that for a couple of weeks they bought their supplies now they're back down there with the Konamala people a couple shots of them going back in these are just really fresh shots just got them a few days ago, you can see all their supplies stacked in their house. So if you had to buy your groceries for several months at a time, that's kind of what it would look like. You can't just run out to the grocery store. You have to, you know, stock up. The teams got back together. 
two couples with their kids and just a couple shots of them playing out there. So the two girls belong to us. The two boys belong to our son's co-worker. Now, I have a video clip here I want to play for you. And this is uh, really fresh. Seth just sent this to us yesterday, I believe. And thanks to Gary and all of his incredible work up there, we figured out a way we can make this work, I think. So here we go. Hey, guys. Seth here. Uh, just wanted to send you a quick little update. Uh, from out here in Konamala. We just now got actually back from the beach. We spent the afternoon down there with our families, so we had a good time, um, got a little sunburn. But just wanted to give you a quick update on how things are going down here. We have moved back into Konamala, and uh, we're trying to get the ball rolling again on some language learning and reconnecting with all our friends down here and just making some progress learning the language, learning the culture, moving forward with those things. So things are going really well. Uh, it's been a bit of a slow start. Things have been uh, really busy in the community, and we've had a number of different interruptions with things. So it's been a little bit different looking than we were hoping for. But uh, yeah, it's going really well. We're doing good as a family. The trip down here went really well. We've been able to settle in, get our houses back and squared away. and. Uh, uh, we're moving forward now. So at this point, we've got quite a long stretch in front of us of uh, time that we're going to be spending down here to just really make some progress on the language and hopefully a goal, a uh, very maybe optimistic goal or uh, ambitious goal is to be finishing the, our language study for Kotamala and culture study within the next year or so. So maybe by this time next year, we would... Hopefully, our goal is to be finishing up with language, be able to start prepping for uh, teaching and the next steps that would we'll be moving forward with all of our friends here, which is actually a little, quite a bit faster than we expected. We had our, our main language consultant was telling us that he felt like it was totally realistic for us to be able to do that. So that was super exciting, kind of intimidating. Uh, but yeah, we're really trusting the Lord to see how that goes uh, to move forward with our progress in language and hopefully soon be able to start teaching and engaging with God's word uh, with our friends, which would be really, really exciting. So hopefully you guys have a good weekend uh, with my parents. Say hi to them for us. Uh, we get to FaceTime with them now. We actually have internet out here in Konamala, which is amazing now. We just got that installed a little while ago. So we can actually FaceTime better with my parents from right here in Konamala than we can anywhere else in the country. So that's been super fun. Um, but yeah, say hi to them. Hopefully you guys have a great time with them this weekend. And uh, we'll talk to you guys later. See ya. Okay. So if they can finish their language study in a year, maybe begin to translate God's word and prepare Bible lessons and start to teach. I want to show you kind of what is involved in the process coming up. What's, what's next? Of course, that's what he was just talking about. If they can finish that in the next year, the Konomala people will have to be taught how to read and write in their own language. They are a bilingual people group. They speak their language and the trade language, so they're, they are literate in the trade language, but not their own language, right? Because their own language still has to be put into written form and the scriptures translated into that. 
Then the Bible translation begins, Bible lesson preparation. Seth and Luke are not going to want to get up and just, you know, wing it when they can finally teach God's word in the Konamala language. It's, they're going to have to be very careful and think through every lesson and how they want to communicate the truths from God's word because they're doing it in a second language that's not their mother tongue. They got to be really careful, think through their lessons. That's a pretty detailed process they'll go through. Then they begin to teach God's word foundationally, starting in Genesis, working through to the gospel presentation. And once there are believers, they go into this discipleship phase of teaching new believers, then teaching maturing believers, appointing elders ultimately one day, and then finishing the translation. They're translating all through that process, but they would want to see the translation finished and then begin to move out of that people group and turn the work over to the Konamala themselves. So listed there on the board, that's a pretty long process, probably realistically from today until they would reach such a point that they're able to kind of move out. We're, we're talking, I would guess, realistically 10 years probably if things go well. So without going too much down into the weeds of all that, I wanted to spend the last time, amount of my time here with you talking about this, like why so complicated? Why so many steps? Why in a place like that can't you just go in, learn the language, share the gospel, you know, leave them with the Spirit of God within them and an understanding of the gospel and move on? Why, like, why does it take so long? Why do they have to go through all those phases? And I would, I would answer that in two ways. The first one I would say is, if we go back to what the Lord Jesus told us to do as a church, remember what he said? Go and make disciples of the nations. What's a disciple? A disciple is more than a convert. A, discipler is, a disciple is a follower. And actually, if you go back and look at the culture of the day and how disciples learn from their discipler, it was a rather intense multi-year process that a disciple would learn from his mentor to be grown and equipped in the work, whatever he was being discipled to do. So it's a little bit more than just sharing the gospel. Jesus said to teach them everything that I have commanded you. How do we do that if we don't have their word in their language? How do we do that if we've only taught them through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that's all they know, and they're left without Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and Corinthians? It, it just wouldn't work. So that's one part of it. The other part that I want to talk to you about this morning is the, a part I think that most of us North Americans have a hard time relating to, and that is, like, What's going on in the minds of those people? That's not the Konamala people on the screen. That's the people group that my wife and I lived with in South America for about 12 years. They're called the Hoti people. The Hoti people and the Konamala people that Seth and Caitlin work with have a lot in common. They're very different. They live very differently. The Hoti were very isolated, jungle-dwelling, nomadic, hunter-gatherer, kill-monkeys-with-a-blowgun type people group, the Konamala, are far more advanced, you might say, far more familiar with the outside world and cars and phones and satellite and all that stuff. But they shared one thing in common, and that is they had both been isolated from the truth of God's word. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, 
Within the minds of the Konamala and within the minds of the Hoti people, there is a very well-established and I would say well-thought-out worldview, a belief system. And if we don't very carefully work our way through those steps that I laid out for you on the screen, we will not see a people group like this become mature believers in Christ. There's a worldview grid, you might say, uh, that's standing in the way. I wanted to share a little bit of that with you, a little bit of the Hoti context as a comparison to what Seth and Caitlin are doing in the Konamala. This is where the Hoti lived. You're probably familiar with where Venezuela is in South America. Down towards, oh, did I get my little, yeah, the little red circle there, that's where the Hoti people lived. If you, about, as you're going from north to south, about halfway is where all the towns and cities end. And from that, where it says San Fernando de Apure there in the middle, right above Venezuela, pretty much everything south of that is, is jungle terrain that looks like this. No roads, no towns, just trees and rivers and waterfalls for two, three hours in your airplane till you finally arrive out to where the Hoti people live. This picture that I have on the screen, a little hard probably to see what's going on in there. I didn't take that picture. A missionary friend of mine took that picture, and it's the very first picture of a Hoti person ever taken by an outsider, as far as we know. The Hoti people lived way up high in the mountains of Venezuela, away from the rivers, away from where people might, from the outside world might go in and find them. And so they, they were so well hidden up in there that not even their own government knew they were up there. That was as late as 1970. They were undiscovered in the jungles of Venezuela. The way they were found is their closest neighboring people group had missionaries working with them, a people group called the Piaroa, throwing a bunch of people group names out here this morning. The missionaries with the Piaroa people started to hear stories from their Piaroa friends. They said, hey, when we go up in those mountains, we run into people up there. And it was the Hoti people. And the name that the Piaroa gave to the Hoti were, was the the Ha-Ha people. They called them the Ha-Ha people. And they said to the missionary, that's because that's the last sound you'll hear as they drive their spear through your, through your chest. They'll kill you and they'll laugh as they kill you. They were killers. Now, I don't know how that rumor got started, but we lived with them for 12 years. And you will not find a more nonviolent people group on the face of the earth, I don't think, than the Hoti. Not only did they never throw their spear at somebody, I would bet that the thought never entered their mind to do such a thing. Not because they were good Christians or that God's word had influenced them. I don't know how to explain it other than their culture, their way of living told them that anger and violence is abhorrent and we don't want anything to do with it. And so this guy, this first guy, the missionaries that went up in there, when they finally, it's a long process, I don't have time to tell you about it, but when they finally found where the Hoti people lived, they didn't know if the guy was going to come out and throw a spear at him. They actually kind of thought he would based on everything they had heard and turned out very friendly. A friendly, peaceful contact was made. It took a number of years for missionaries to be able to move in there and live with them. In fact, the guy in the back there that you see, he's the guy that took these pictures and 
This is also one of the very first pictures. My wife and I, the only guys we know in that picture are the second and third guys from the left, two very close friends of ours. All the rest uh, had passed away before missionaries were able to get in there and established. This is uh, my coworker and I in the, in the stage that Seth and, and Caitlin are in, learning language, learning worldview so that we could share the gospel with these people. And I want to tell you just kind of to help you understand the barrier that worldview can be. I want to tell you about something that happened to us when we were very new there in the Hoti people group. The picture I have on the screen here actually was taken at the end of our time as we were flying out in 2006. The government of Venezuela had determined that they didn't want missionaries in their jungle any longer, and so they evicted all of us. Uh, And I snapped this picture on our last flight out of there. We've never been allowed to go back in there. But I remember when I took this picture looking down on that scene, and you can't really see it too well, but you see a whole bunch of people out there in the middle of the airstrip kind of looking up at the airplane as we flew away. And I remember looking down on that people group thinking, that's a very different picture than what I saw when we first moved in here 12 years ago. Everybody looking up at you in that picture, they're believers, and you're going to meet them in heaven one day. And actually, a lot of the people in that picture have already gone on ahead of us, and they're there. After we were expelled, medicine became very scarce, and a number of our friends, you know, we, we get word through the grapevine that a number of them have passed away, and they're already in heaven. But as I was looking down on that group of people and thinking about how blessed we were to be leaving, not by choice, but we had to leave, but at least leaving a whole valley full of very sound and well-grounded believers in Jesus Christ. Some of them were already Bible teachers and the gospel had been spreading through their jungle for a number of years before we had to leave. But as I was looking down, I, a, a memory came to mind. And it was probably three months from when we first moved in. I was brand new. Both of us were brand new. Couldn't speak any Hoti at the time. My coworker Steve, who I showed you in that previous picture, his, we're both named Steve. I probably told you this before if you came down to Waiyumi. The Hoti decided to call him Big Steve and me Little Steve. So I'm little Steve to this day, to the Hoti. And big Steve came over to the house one day and he said, uh, hey, I just got a call on the radio. We had shortwave radios back then. No such thing as satellite links and all that back then. He said, I got a call on the radio this morning from a missionary station that was about 40 minutes by airplane from us. And the missionary over there wanted to know if we were aware of any Hoti people who might have migrated out of their territory all the way over to that other people group's territory. He said, because the missionary over there is telling us that there's some people that have moved in over here that they don't speak the language of, they don't know who they are, they don't know what tribal group they belong to, but they're making an annoyance of themselves. They're stealing out of people's gardens, and the people over there that that missionary's working with They want them to leave. And they're asking us if we think maybe they're Hoti people and could we fly over there 
and talk to those Hoti people and convince them to leave, go back to their home territory. I was brand new at the time, and I didn't know what to make of that information. I had no, could that be Hoti? I don't know. My coworker had been there a number of years, and he spoke the language very well by then. And his immediate impression was, I don't think that could be Hoti. There's no way. that Hoti stay in their little territory. People groups, it's amazing to me. I don't know uh, how to explain this, except the Bible says that God established the boundaries of people's habitation back when he scattered them at the Tower of Babel. The Hoti know right where their territory begins and ends in the jungle, even though there's no signs, no borders, no border crossings. They just come to a certain river and they say, uh, we don't really go over there. Why not? Well, that's not ours. There's nobody over there. There's nobody over there for a long, long ways. But somehow the Hoti, in their minds, they know this is where our territory ends. The people that we were being asked about had migrated Ah, how many miles? A hundred miles? Probably a hundred miles outside of that. No way. We went around the village and we started asking some of our Hoti friends what they think. Hey, we heard about this. You know, there's people over there and they want to know, could they be Hoti? And we got an interesting response from some of our friends. They said, I wonder if that's Tito and his clan. Now, my coworker had been there a number of years. Like I said, he never heard of this guy. Who are you talking about? And they told us about a guy, a Hoti man, who some years previous to this, you know, they don't have calendars, and so they couldn't say, you know, on April 4th of 1987 or whatever. They, they just said, you know, a while ago, this guy left. And he had gathered all his family members and his clan, and he said, I am going to go and find the edge of the world and climb the trees to heaven. Who's coming with me? Okay, so here's, in the Hoti worldview, what he's talking about. This is a drawing of how the Hoti people perceived the universe before the Bible got there. Three layers of dirt or earth uh, the top layer is heaven, it's paradise. The middle layer is where all of us people live. And the bottom layer is a very dark, scary, like rank body of water. It's all the dirty water that falls off the middle layer of earth and collects down there. It's a dark, scary place. It's kind of like a hell concept almost. So you got heaven, earth, and whatever that thing is down there. If you notice in my drawing, I didn't draw this. I described it to a friend who's an artist, and she drew this for me. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they travel in a circular pattern. And so at night, the sun, he's down there traveling below the middle layer, and in the day, he's up there above. And I say he because in their worldview, he is a person. The sun is a spirit. The stars are spirits. The moon is a spirit. They travel that circular pattern. This, this big guy standing on the left of the picture... He's a spirit being in their worldview. His name is Igegaha, means hard man. Igegaha is not their creator, and they don't believe he made anything. They don't worship him, but he has a very important job. His job is to stand next to this, what you might call the cosmos, and watch over it. 
And he makes sure that that middle layer of, of earth is securely fastened to the trees and paradise is securely resting in the branches up there and he makes sure everything stays intact. They have a very interesting story, legend in their worldview that as a Christian and believer in the Bible I found to be quite interesting. They believe with all their heart that somewhere in the past, they don't really know how long ago it was, but somewhere in the past, Igegahant got mad one day. He got mad because the people living on the middle layer of earth, which is all of us and all the Hoti, we were being so bad, behaving so wickedly, that it made him angry. And he took his machete out, and he chopped those vines that hold up the middle layer until it collapsed down into the big ocean below, and it flooded the whole world and killed everybody. What does that sound like? Think of the similarities. It was the wickedness of man that brought about the catastrophic flood. That's, a, to me, a huge connection to the story of Noah. These are people who live in the jungle and have never even seen a big river, let alone an ocean. And yet they have a story of a, a worldwide cataclysmic flood that destroyed the whole world and everybody in it because they were being so wicked. Isn't that amazing? If evolution is true, how do you explain that? The Hoti knew that story back at the Tower of Babel. And that story, after God scattered them, if you read your Bible through the, through the Genesis account, and God scattered everybody from the Tower of Babel and put them where he wanted them around the world, that story of Noah's flood that everybody knew back then has been so perverted down through the generations in the Hoti mind that that's, that's their story of it today. By the way, that story plays a role in their lives today. They, you hear them say often, this is before they became believers, before the Bible got there. They'd say, hey, everybody, you know, we need to start being good because if we don't, Igegahant is going to get mad again. He'll chop the vines again. Everybody lived in fear every day that if they got too bad, too wicked, they'd collapse down into the ocean below. So we decided, let's go over there and find out if this is Tito. He's looking for the edge of the world. By the way, that, that picture, hopefully you understand what Tito was looking for. He was going to find those trees and climb them up to heaven. And if he could get there without having to die, that would be very significant to a Hoti person. Because the only way you can get to heaven, the normal way, is you die and your soul leaves and you walk the trail of the dead and there's some dangers that you have to get past on that trail. It's a pretty precarious journey. You might make it, you might not. I don't want to get down into the details of all that, but if you could do it as a living person, so much better. Climb the trees and you skip that whole dangerous trail, the spirit trail. So he set out for this. We went over there and we went out into this, it was like a 40-minute flight, and then we were taken by the locals there out into this jungle area where these, these visiting people had built some houses. No one was present. We went into these, to this area, and it was my coworker and I and a couple of our Hoti friends, and they started looking at the huts that these people had built, and they said right away, these are Hoti huts. We're certain of it. Now, I had never seen a hut that pathetic in my life. The huts that the Hoti made in our valley were way nicer 
way better built than the ones I was looking at. I remember looking up through the roof of this thing and seeing more sky than roof, thinking if we sleep in here tonight and it rains, we're getting wet because it was just kind of scattered leaves up there. We hung around and we waited. A lady came out of the jungle. We could tell there was probably 30 or so people that had made these huts, but none of them were there. Finally, a lady came out. This is not a picture of that lady. I did not have a camera with me that day. I wish I did, but I didn't. But this is the dirtiest baby face I have in all of my pictures. Because I remember when I saw that lady and her baby thinking, I have never seen a human being that filthy in my whole life, that, that like physically dirty. Now, the Hoti back then were scared to death of the water. They believed that the spirits lived down in the water. And if you get in the water to take a bath, you probably won't come out. So, consequently, they didn't take baths. But this lady was exceptionally, like, she was covered from head to toe in some kind of jungle grime. I remember her scraping the inside of her wrist like this to make a little bare place on her skin so she could fan it and try to cool down. That's how covered she was. And the baby, I was, was indescribable. On the heels of that lady came these two guys. Two men came out of the jungle. Again, this is not a picture of those guys. Didn't have a camera. But it kind of looks like this. I was brand new, I told you. I couldn't speak the language of the Hoti. My coworker could. All I could do was watch and look and see. And something really struck me that day through my eye gate because I couldn't understand anything through this ear gate. As I looked at those guys and I watched them interacting with my coworker and my Hoti friends, I, as I looked in their eyes, I saw something t- that I felt to that point. I, I've never seen anything quite like that before. And it was a darkness that you could see. Like, all the Houthi have brown eyes. None of them have blue eyes. Like They're all brown eyes. So everybody there had brown eyes. That was, I, I wasn't seeing a different color of eye. But as I was looking into their eyes, I saw this empty darkness that you could literally... I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if you can see spiritual darkness in somebody's eyes. I don't know. I don't know what that is. But it was real, and I could see it, and it was concerning to me. I remember thinking to myself, how in the world could you ever get, not him, okay, it wasn't him, but those guys, how could you ever get them to understand what Jesus did for them? It's like, you know, knocking on this wood. I don't mean to say that disparagingly to them, but it felt like this impenetrable black darkness. And I think that was actually an accurate perception based on what I later came to understand about what was behind those eyes. What belief system is behind those eyes? And it reminded me of this verse in Corinthians. I just want to kind of touch on this and try to wrap this up for us. Paul says that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are dying. If you remember the context of this verse, Paul is hearkening back to Moses. And Moses had just gone up on the mountain and he, he came down off Mount Sinai and his face was literally glowing with the glory of God. He had caught a glimpse of the Creator and his, his face was beaming with it. And he came down off the mountain and the Israelites were afraid. And they said, Moses, cover that up. It makes us afraid. 
and he put a veil in front of his face so they could not see the glory of God reflecting from his face. Remember that story? Paul harkens back to that and he says, if our gospel, the message that we're proclaiming, talking about the gospel of the grace of God and the Lord dying for us on the cross, if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are dying. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God. It wasn't Paul who was putting a veil in front of the gospel and making it hard to understand. From this context, we know that it's the God of this world. That's Satan. And he has blinded the minds of those who do not believe with a very clear purpose to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. I believe that's what I was seeing that day. I was seeing the evidence of a very skillful, intelligent, powerful enemy of God who had blinded the minds of the Hoti people to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. That's what the scriptures say. And I think that was the first time I was catching a glimpse of it. And then as we delved into their belief system and their worldview, I don't have time to get into it. If you want to hear more of this, here's a good mic. I'll give you a, I'll give you a little plug here, a little, little commercial. Come down to Wyumi, and I'll tell you even more about what did we discover as we delved into their worldview. The lies that the enemy had planted in their belief system I tell you what, I'm pretty sure if I had the time to tell you about them, you'd be going, whoa, that's a pretty clever lie. Whoever told them that lie knows God's word really well because that lie will keep you from ever understanding the gospel if you hold on to that lie. And so will that lie and so will that lie. That's what we were discovering with the Houthi people. And it all comes back, I believe, to this truth in God's word. Let me just tell you one, and I'm going to wrap with this. Here's one of the lies that the Hoti believed. In my opinion, this is one of the easier lies to overcome. Some of the other lies were so clever that it took some careful Bible teaching to overcome those. But this one, let's call this the, Hoti, the lie that the Hoti people have been told about how you get to heaven. Remember that place up there called Paradise? I remember asking the Hoti guys, what's that like up there? What's heaven like? Remember, they've never seen a Bible. Don't know what God's word says at all. Their description of heaven was somewhat similar to what our Bible would tell us. They said, well, you never die up there. You, you never even get old up there. They said you just keep shedding your skin and growing new skin like a snake does. And so you never get old and, and you never get hungry up there. There's food all over the place. There's animals all over the place. It's a wonderful place, happy place, good place. I kept pressing them for more information. Well, tell me more. What's heaven like? I remember this was kind of funny. Fifth or sixth on, on the list of every man that I asked, what's heaven like? They said, well, you never get tired of your wife up there. <laughs> Okay, no comment on that one. But they always said that. The only way to get to heaven is to walk the trail of the dead. And if you were to ask my friend Ralph, who's now already with the Lord in heaven, he passed away after we left, 
one of our closest and dearest friends we've ever had on this earth is that guy right there. If you knew him, you loved him. He's just a likable guy. You can't help but like him. If you say, hey, Ralph, how are you going to get to heaven when you die? This is before he heard the gospel. You know what Ralph would have done? You're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. He reached up his nose and grabbed something up there and pulled it out and showed you the thing that he is banking his eternal destiny on, his Savior, right there between his fingers. What do you think it could be? When he's very little, this big, somebody, his parent, one of his parents probably, takes a sharp bone, grabs the nose, sticks it up in there, and pokes a hole in the septum of his nose about this high. And as that hole heals, they put a hardwood stick in that hole. Just a little one. And they leave that stick in there until it rots, and then they'll put another stick in there. Leave it in there till it rots. And from the time he's five years old till the time he dies, he's got that hardwood stick in his nose. He would never be caught without it even for a moment because his eternal destiny depends on that stick. And you go, what? How in the world could that be? You see, because when Ralph dies and he walks the trail of the dead to paradise, one of the main obstacles he has to get past is a big house. And inside that big house is an old woman spirit who's as big as a tree. She comes out of that house as you walk by to heaven and she picks you up, holds you up in the air and looks up your nose. And if she sees that stick up your nose, she says, I can't eat you. You're no good for eating. She puts you down and you scurry off to heaven. But if you don't have the stick in your nose, she eats you and that's the end of your soul. And that man believed that as strongly as you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he was banking his eternal destiny on that little stick in his nose. And you, you, you and I hear that and we think, how could anybody believe such a thing? But if you were taught that from the time you were a toddler, and everybody who speaks your language believes that, I can pretty much assure you'd take a sharp, sharp bone and poke a hole in your nose too. That's just one of the lies. But think of the effectiveness of that lie. If you'd have asked my friend Ralph, are you going to make it to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was totally certain. Well, how do you know? Well, look. That's a pretty good lie. He's not looking for a savior. He's not wondering how he's... Well, I need... I'm separated from God. I have. How do I get back to God? He's not thinking anything like that. I'm a sinner. How do I get... He, no, he's, he's got it under control. He's got his stick in his nose. That's a pretty effective lie. All that to circle back around. Why do we have to go so slow? Why do we have to be so careful? Why do you send Seth and Caitlin off to Papua New Guinea and, you know, you're going to be supporting them for 10 years at least till they finish this job? It's because the Konamala people have their own, dare I say, messed up, very well-designed and thought-out worldview full of lies that the enemy has planted in their minds that the missionaries have to learn, have to know where the stumbling blocks are in their mind, and then they have to teach God's word very carefully, very slowly, 
and watch God's word. This was the funnest thing we ever got to see. And this was amazing. When the day came when we could finally communicate in the Hoti language, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and just start working our way through the scriptures and watching the light of God's word. In fact, dare I, I do. I wanted to close with this verse. God said, light shall shine out of dark. The same God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is right after the verses I just read. And Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are dying because the God of this age has blinded their minds. But the same God who said, let, let there be light, remember that from Genesis, and the light shined out of the darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how we understand the gospel. That's how you understand it. Because God has shined the light of the truth into our darkened minds. And how does he do it? I love this verse. Psalm 119, 130. Thy words, O Lord, are light. They give understanding to the simple. It's his words. It's the truth from the book that we all hold as it penetrates the darkened mind of the Hoti or the Konamala or us. The light goes in and it collides with the darkness and it collides with the lies. And this is what was so fun to watch. As the Hoti people had the light of the truth penetrate their darkened mind and it ran headlong into the lies that they had always believed. And you could see them going like this. Wait a minute, that's not what we always believed. And you as the communicator of the gospel, you get to say, yeah, hey, listen, listen, did you hear what God just said there? That doesn't sound like, like what the Hoti believed, does it? No. In fact, you guys, you guys say this is true, but God says this is true. I wonder which one is true. And you see this collision going on in their mind, and they're going, which one? Which one is it? And here's what was so amazing was in the case of that people group, the Hoti, collectively they all said, well, you know what? If God said it, we're going to believe what God said. Out goes the lie, in comes the light. And when enough of that light penetrates the dark mind and all those lies have been displaced and they can understand who God is and what happened in the Garden of Eden when man fell into sin and what the ramifications were of that and how God promised a deliverer. And then all through the Old Testament, he he weaved his promise through all those Old Testament stories and lives and real people and all the way through to the culmination of Mary having a baby. And he's the fulfillment of the promise back in the garden, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, fix this sin problem that we have. They walk through that whole process and they get to the gospel and they say, that's the one we've been waiting for. That's the one God promised back in the garden. They put their faith in him. And then you have baby believers and you disciple those baby believers and you translate Acts and you translate Corinthians and you translate Romans and you teach them through that and they grow and they grow and they grow and eventually they end up with a local church just like you guys have right here with elders and pastor shepherds and deacons and Bible truth and solid foundations in the gospel but it's just a very long arduous process and my son and his wife and his cohort, they're at the very beginning of this. And, you know, it is, I have to be honest. It's pretty fun to watch. It's pretty fun to watch. 
your son going through the same stuff you went through. Now, I will say he's smarter than I am. He's a better language learner than I am because he's learning the language faster. I also tell him, your language is easier. Just saying. <laughs> but I don't admit to him like I'm admitting to you that he is a better language learner than I ever was. But they're still at the beginning of that. And here's what's exciting. is what I love coming and updating you on. You are part of that process. The churches that sent us out years ago, they followed that Hoti process right through, and they got to see that people group pass from darkness to light, from not even knowing who Jesus is to being your brothers and sisters in Christ and missionaries and pastor shepherds and the whole bit. And you guys get to ride along that same journey. Not ride along, I shouldn't say that. You're not along for the ride. I would say you're driving the bus. Because you are the ones making it possible for them to be out there. And your prayers cannot be overstated, the impact of your prayers. The Hoti people embraced the gospel with their whole heart. And I'm convinced that it wasn't because good missionaries were good whatever. I'm convinced it was because people back here were praying for them regularly and often. And when God's truth came into that darkened mind, the enemy's lies had nowhere to go but out. Because God was illuminating the minds of those people and they were understanding his truth and they had believing hearts and the rest is, the rest is easy when you think about it. God's spirit working with his truth in the heart of a believing individual, amazing things will happen. And so I just encourage you folks to be part of it. Thank you for being part of it, and I encourage you to continue to pray regularly for them. This time next year, they could be starting in Genesis teaching God's Word. It'll be pretty fun for us to watch that together. So I'm going to stop there. I'm going to thank you again for the opportunity to come up and share with you and give you a little bit more information on what your missionary is doing out there. And I'm going to close my time with a word of prayer. Father, we are very thankful for the opportunity to be together again today. Just so easy to drive up here and be together, even though it's a long distance. We're just so used to such an easy life of being able to go long distances, a very short period of time. And we know that there's people in this world that don't live like that, that are way more isolated. And more importantly than that, they're isolated from your word and from your truth and from understanding what you did for them. We want to pray for the Konamala team, the Konamala people. They are at a critical stage. Language is being learned, Lord, and we're thankful for that. Uh, The welcome has been put out, and the missionaries are welcome there. And their message is anticipated already. Help them to learn the language. Help them to learn it well. Help them to learn it quickly. And I pray you'll continue to build strong relationships in the community begin to be working in the minds of the Konamala people to make them receptive to the message that they're going to hear one day, hopefully soon. Thank you for this church and the role that it is playing in that work and in your word penetrating another people group that has never had it before. We're so thankful to be a part of that, Lord. I pray for each one as we leave here and go our separate ways today. Just give us safety as we travel back home. Thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen.
guess we are dismissed. <laughs>